This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I are huge fans of the Hemingway Review. We always read it to see the latest scholarship. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org backslash journals. Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon producing. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Here at One True Podcast, Michael and I have vowed to devote a show, eventually, to every single Hemingway short story, one for each of the first 49. And we're doing a pretty good job so far. We've had some memorable shows with some fantastic guests about both Hemingway's masterpieces and also some minor efforts. And you wouldn't have thought it would have taken this long, but here we are at long last. We're pushing four years, and we are finally going to focus on Hills Like White Elephants. Hills Like White Elephants, from Hemingway's 1927 short story collection, Men Without Women, is his iconic story that if you've read one Hemingway story, it's probably this one. If you've read three, this is definitely one of them. So, is this story Hemingway's best or only his most famous? Why has Hills Like White Elephants been so enduring? To help us figure all of this out, we are delighted to welcome Russ Pottle to the conversation. Russ Pottle is Dean of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at Worcester State University in central Massachusetts and a member of the Hemingway Review editorial board. His research and teaching interests are in travel writing studies, popular culture, medical literature, and the life and work of Ernest Hemingway. His essay on Hills Like White Elephants is a real highlight of the recent book, Hemingway's Spain, Imagining the Spanish World, a book I edited with Carl Eby. Actually, I think I brought Carl coffee while he edited it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's a wonderful essay. Welcome to One True Podcast, Russ Pottle. Happy to be here. Great to have you, Russ, and especially on such a hallowed occasion as talking about Hills Like White Elephants. So I love to get at some of the questions that I brought up in the introduction, but before we do, what is the summary of Hills Like White Elephants? What is What happens in the story? What is it about? So we're in Spain uh, in the 1920s in a railway station along the Ebro River at a point where a rail line running north-south, not originating at Pamplona, but running through Pamplona, meets up with the main line that runs east and west, uh, connecting Barcelona and Madrid as the two major cities. Uh, It's hot. It's really hot. Uh, Nearby, a traveling couple, a man and a woman, uh, are chatting about what they should drink while they're waiting for a train to Madrid, which is coming in 40 minutes, the text tells us. Uh, or it sounds like chatting anyway at first. Pretty quickly, we can hear that they're in a tense and coded conversation. They're not exactly fighting or arguing. Um, 
it feels more like wrestling, like one of those styles where everything is in close and, and you try to shift your opponent off center while holding your own balance. And we can figure out through the dialogue that the woman whose name or nickname is Jig is pregnant, uh, that the man who is called the American in the text is trying to talk Jig into terminating the, pre- terminating the pregnancy and, uh, and that Jig is not at all sure about that. Uh, so they struggle with each other, but it seems as if they don't want to get to a place where someone says something they can't unsay. Uh, so they engage, they pull back, they distract into another topic. Uh, separately, they get up and move around to interrupt when things get too tense. Uh, but toward the end, uh, things actually look like they're getting out of hand. Jig threatens to scream and the American takes an extended break. Uh, he moves their bags to the platform for the arriving train. He walks around a bit, has a drink in the station bar and uh, comes back to the couple's table. He asks how she is, and she says, I feel fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I feel fine. So that's what happens. Um, As for what the story is about, on one level, it's exactly about a couple uh, trying not to argue about whether Jig should uh, choose to terminate her pregnancy. On another level, it's about all sorts of things. Uh, Self-determination, choice, control, coercion, women's bodies, male irresponsibility, and privilege. Take your pick. So that's a lot crammed into just a couple of pages, isn't it, Russ? I think the story is maybe 1,500 words or so. Okay. Well, then that'll allow us to kind of slow walk through it and try to get as many of the major concepts, themes, and moments, and actually sentences, which there are some magnificent ones, before we even get to the beginning. What about the title, Hills Like White Elephants? It is a simile as a title. Um, Think about how many titles you've ever heard in songs or movies or stories where there's a simile in it. What do you make of the simile? How does that uh, language function in the story? It functions in the story as a way of, um, of signaling, uh, signaling to us. I think that, uh, that jig, the, she's called the, she's called the girl in, in the, um, referred to as the girl in the story, but uh, you know, that's, um, I don't know. That's that's something I'd rather not do. So I'll, <laughs> so I'll call her the woman. Um, I think I think it's our first inkling uh, that she has a uh, a creative uh, mm. a creative mind. Um, she's able to she's able to see things in in simile or metaphor. Um, and then immediately after, well, or while she's saying this, we realize that her companion, the American, um, doesn't get it at all. Um, and so there's a you know. There's a sense that uh, that the you know the next thirty minutes or so is going to be really uncomfortable. Yeah, and so is there something about the image of a of an elephant or a white elephant that is resonant in the story? What is what's our association with that animal or with that object? Well, the association with the you know with the uh, the animal uh, could be any number of things. It could be it could be a sacred animal. Um, uh, it, if it's a, just a figure of speech, um, a white elephant is maybe something that's, you know, that that's expensive to have, but pretty useless. Um, so it could go, it could go in a couple of different directions. Um, the, you know, the simile actually comes from, uh, from Hemingway, from Hemingway's own consciousness. Um, in 1925, uh, after the, the San Fermin, he and, uh, he and Hadley, Hemingway and Hadley uh, Richardson, his first wife, uh, took that train from, uh, from Pamplona, uh, to Casetas. Um, and, and he, and 
Hemingway created a sort of autobiographical sketch out of that. Um, and in the sketch, he spends a lot of time on the hills. He spends a good, you know, four paragraphs um, describing the hills. And he says that they, that they, you know, that they look like white elephants, um, that they're, um, that they're mysterious, both, uh, both he and he reports Hadley saying, um, saying they're mysterious and, and Hemingway spends, you know, a good bit of time on their color, you know, how they might've gotten uh, that color without being snow capped, you know, how they might look on a cloudy day. And, and he, again, he actually talks about elephants in the, you know, in this, uh, the sketch, he says in the heat, they show as white as white elephants in the sun. The simile right there. I mean, that's, you know, that's Hemingway. And is it making too much to su- that, it, that, that simile would suggest the kind of tumescence of a pregnant woman, or is that taking it too far? I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure what's too far. Um I, I you know when I when I read the story I don't I don't actually get that um from it. I mean I've, right. I've read that in the criticism. I'm I'm not going to tell somebody that they can't that they and can't you, you know remark yeah. on something they believe they You've see. also heard uh the phrase the elephant in the room which mm-hmm. is I mean whether or not that was Hemingway had that in mind how perfect is that for this story? Right, avoiding because talking I talking s- around something that every everybody knows, just nobody wants to acknowledge. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I could I could see that one popping out in a No Henry story, <laughs> yeah, right? right. Um, you know, but but the idea of you know of the you know of the elephant in you know the elephant in the room for Hemingway, I I I don't know if that you know if that lines up. Um, uh, you know, I. I Nobody's really sure where right. the central conflict comes from, right? Where where the the argument over um, over terminating the pregnancy comes from? Uh, Robert McAllman says that that he put the you know he put the bug in Hemingway's ear. Um, Paul Smith sees you know sees the story as as you know part of uh, a long rumination on marriage that uh, that Hemingway pursued through a number of stories in the uh, in the early twenties. Um, it could be you know it could be a continuation right of uh, the sun also rises you know where people live um, you know among abortions and rumors of yes. abortions or you know or it could be um, you know it could be. Uh, uh, Hemingway's own experience, uh, you know, some of the biographies suggest that uh, that Hadley maybe had and Pauline probably had uh, an abortion, uh, terminated a pregnancy. Um, so, yeah, you know, that's you know that's kind of unknown. But the idea of of the hills and their color and the rest of that that's all straight out of uh, that's all straight out of Hemingway's mind. And and there's a lot. I want to say there's a lot that's transposed from that 1925 autobiographical sketch into the story, but Hemingway does what he does, right? He transposes it and then he cuts it all, he cuts it all back. Um, so instead of, um, you know, instead of say four paragraphs, um, on the hills and their coloring and, and, uh, you know, and that they look like white elephants, uh, he just cuts that down to a few sentences. Russ, I think one of the really conspicuous elements of this story is the proportion between dialogue and description. And if you flip through the story, you see most of it is dialogue. And there are a couple paragraphs of description. And we start with maybe the longest paragraph of description. And so I hope we can talk about that. But what about the setting 
and the way that Hemingway establishes the scene. Like for instance, this long first prose paragraph before we get into the dialogue of the two characters, what does that give us in terms of setting the reader in the scene? It puts the reader right in the scene. The hills across the valley of the Ebro were long and white. And then in that first prose paragraph, you hear about this side mm. of the station, right? right? Um, and so as opposed to that side of the station. And so we're here, right? That's, you know, when I, when I talk about summarizing the story, it's like, we're, we're there. That first prose paragraph establishes, uh, establishes the setting, but it also puts us as readers, you know, right there at the next table. Um, because we're on, we're, we too, right. Are on this side of, you know, of the river and there's, you know, and there's the other side, um, that, that we can see. Um, so it's, it's really, I mean, no, it's not the, it's not the only, um, you know, it's not the only Hemingway story that kind of puts you right there, right? Like the, the opening of the killers, you know, the door opens and you're in the diner, right? Um, but in, in this one, um, it's almost as if, uh, Hemingway is working, to make the reader an eavesdropper mm. um, on this. Although there's, you know, there are things in the story that if you were sitting next to them, you couldn't see. Um, but, but there's an immediacy, um, you know, you're with them, you feel it's hot. Um, you, you know, you can, you can hear, you can hear their, their tenseness. You can hear their struggle. Of the two sides that Hemingway is talking about, one side is shady and the other side is illuminated. And so it seems like there's a dark, a dark side and a bright side. And you, won- you wonder mm-hmm. how that might manifest itself in the story. The other thing, Russ, is um, as you were saying about these two characters and the way they're named and characterized in that first paragraph, it says the American and the girl with him. And I think that's such a weird choice by Hemingway to have the man be identified by his nationality and the woman to be identified by her gender. Um, I mean, by all accounts, wouldn't you say that the that Jig was also an American. Why? Why is Hemingway making these kinds of distinctions? I don't know that Jig is American or or non-American. Why Hemingway would make the American an American is 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 an interesting question. We can figure out from the story, you know, a lot about him. Um, you know, he's he's older. He's well traveled. Uh, you know, he speaks Spanish quite well, at least in addition to English. The you know the implication in the text is that he's done this before, um, maybe not at this particular railway station, you know, maybe so, but certainly somewhere, and you know, conceivably more than once. Right? He's very comfortable talking about the procedure for terminating a pregnancy, and he promises that he can be with Jig during the procedure so she won't go it alone. Um, and he says he's known a lot of people uh, who have gone through it. Now we know, right? Abortion was illegal in Spain in the twenties, but it was illegal throughout you know throughout Western. Europe and North America too, uh, this, but that doesn't mean it wasn't available. Anything's available as long as you have money, mm. right? And the American seems to. So maybe this is a reflection uh, of the time in the twenties, um, you know, when the dollar was, you know, when the dollar was king, um, and uh, and Americans could afford uh, Americans could afford anything. Um, you know, as usual, it's you know. <laughs> It's the folks without money who get screwed, um, you know, not the people with money. Uh, so the American seems very familiar with a set of circumstances that you get to, uh, you know, you get to know only by doing. Um, 
And in the setting of the story, that's a little bit creepy, you know, especially when he assures Jig uh, that everything will be fine after, you know, you know, he's going to dump her. Uh, right. The question is whether he does that, you know, now um, or whether he waits and they have a child and he dumps her that. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's an argument out there that he's a predator. Um, and I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, I'm thinking about the, you know, the footloose Americans yeah. out there um, in, in Hemingway's um, in Hemingway's fiction. You know, there's, you know, you know, there are at least one or two. Right. And the sun also rises, um, you know, right before, uh, right before Hemingway writes this. Well, Russ, in the way that Hemingway writes Hills Like White Elephants and dialogue, he doesn't really indicate to the reader how things are said. And so your reading of, of the American man is as he, that he is quite sinister and um, that, uh, a predator. Does Hemingway open the text up a little bit to allow for this man to be at all compassionate or at all uh, concerned about Jig? Or do you think that this is pretty clearly suggested by Hemingway? Personally, I think it's clearly suggested by Hemingway. I think that there was probably a time in the story's development when there might have been a window for compassion to the American um, or toward the American um, in, in a, a pencil manuscript uh, of the story uh, that's in the, it's, a, it's in the Kennedy library. Um, there's a, there's a point where uh, in the last, the very last part of the story where the American gets up and walks, moves the bags, goes and has a drink in the bar. Um, and, and, in the pencil manuscript, you know, the American kind of goes into a rant in his own head, you know, um, you know, there's, there's got to be a world where things are reasonable. Uh, uh, you know, there's got, there's got to be a place where, you know, where things are simpler than this. And, and, you know, and in that, you know, you could, you could certainly, I think, read, um, you know, the panic of indecision, um, the, uh, you know, the weight um, that it's, um, you know, that it's, it's, you know, the weight that, that is bearing down on, on him as part of this decision-making process. Uh, but, Hem but Hemingway draws a big X, it's actually an X, draws a big X through it, right? Um, and then and, and substitutes, um, substitutes a different sentence. And, you know, once, once that, that sort of rant is out, uh, we're left with, as you say, we're left with, you know, inflectionless dialogue. Yes. Um, but, you know, but a lot of it, has to do with the American's own comfort and not particularly Jig's. Um, you know, he keeps saying things like, I know it'll be fine. I know we'll be fine afterwards. It's, it's the I only thing that, that worries me, right? You know, it's, yeah. Yeah, right, see, yeah. See, yeah you know, and, and, and you, you know, and you, you know, you don't want me to be worried, right? <laughs> right? So, you know, so there's that. I mean, he's like, you know. He's, yeah, there is that suggestion uh, it, that, it, that I, he's, I'm going to be a better boyfriend or husband once, you know, I promise once this happens. So it's a, it, that strikes one as manipulative at, of, of the situation. Yeah. I mean, you know, Hemingway is, is so great at creating complex characters in a short period of time. And it seems, you know, it's, it seems that the American is just every shallow jerk, yeah. um, you know, that, you know, that you've, that you've ever met. I want to go back to what you said in your uh, summary of the story when you 
compared it to these two people wrestling. And one aspect of two people wrestling is that they're both equal in the same uh, contest. But it almost seems like the man's goal and the woman's goal are not in this story are not exactly the same. That the girl is not really here to fight, right? She's sort of trying to either parry the things that he is trying to say or defend herself or just get him to shut up. Uh, it doesn't seem like she is there to litigate her side of the story. Um, and it, so it, I, I guess what I'm really asking about is that the power dynamics in the conversation, much of which is implied by Hemingway's iceberg theory. How does that play out? I think actually that Jig does attempt to litigate her side of things. Uh, you know, the, the American, you know, keeps droning on and on. And, and Pamela Smiley has a really great article about how his, his use of language is very narrow and limited. He keeps repeating the same things over and over. Um, and she keeps, she keeps trying to find new ways to talk about things. And this is where, you know, here's where the hills come in. Here's where your comments about the scenery come in. Um, she has an imaginative mind and she's able to see in the landscape around her um, possibility. Um, she's able to make meaning uh, out of yes. the hills and out of the river and out of the, out of the trees and, you know, out of, out of, uh, you know, the shadow of a cloud moving across the grain. You know, these are, you know, th these are all impenetrable images, right? They're just there. Um, they're the landscape. They have no meaning intrinsically, but she's able to create meaning out of it. Um, and, and I think she's trying to convey to him the kind of possibility for right. life that she sees in the landscape. And he's just, you know, he's, he's, he's bent on his opinion. He's not going to see any of this. Um, and, you know, and, and I think that, you know, I think that starts to show, you know, that starts to show by the, uh, you know, by the end of, by the end of the story that they, that, you know, you're right. They're, they're going in, in, uh, you know, in absolutely opposite directions, you know. There, think of it. Think of it this way, right? Um, there are fifteen uses of the verb "look" in the mm -hmm. story. Um, three of them we can discount, right? Um, because they're like, you know, the hills look like white elephants, you know. Um, but the story, the description of the description, what little there is in the story is almost like stage directions, right? Like she looked at the yes. ground, you know, between the table legs. So, so in terms of that, there are 10 uses, right? Of look, there are exactly four uses of C and two of them we can knock out because um, one of them is a figure of speech will wait and see. Um, and the other one is the, is the American reporting that he's not seen a white uh, elephant right. before. So, so that leaves exactly two uses of the word of the, of the verb see in there. And each character gets one, right? Um, Jig gets it first when she goes to the, she goes out to the, to the railing on the station and she looks across the river and she can see the river through the trees, right? And then that's where the cloud moves and that's where the, you know, the, the fertile valley and the, you know, the grain and the rest of that. So she can see that that's and, and, you know, seeing is a cognitive act. Looking is a physical act, right? So she can see this. So, so this is for a second 
right? We're breaking, you know, Hemingway is breaking point of view and we're inside Jig's head. She can see this. It's hopeful for her. It's, it's possible for her. Um, and you know, and, and that's what she, you know, that's where she wants them to go, I think. And, and then turns around and says, you know, we could have all this, but every day, you know, we make it more and you know, we, you know, we make it less and less possible. The American gets to see when he goes at the, toward the end of the story, when he goes, you know, to the, to the other platform to move the bags, he looks down the tracks and he couldn't see the train. He's oh, looking for the train, but he couldn't see it. Right. And so at that point, right now we're inside the American's head for a couple of minutes and he goes back into the bar, has a drink and looks around at the people and sees the word C isn't there, but you know, you can put it in there in, in brackets and sees that everybody else is waiting reasonably <laughs> for the train. Right. Um, and so what a great and, adverb, and isn't it? it yeah. I know. Well, yeah, doesn't that yeah, replace yeah. the rant that you were talking about? Yeah, yes, yeah. it does. Yes, it does. It does. And so, you know, so we go from, you know, we go from the rant where there's, you know, where there's a valence into, into his panic, his indecision, um, his, uh, you know, his, his conflicted feelings, but that gets X'd out again, you know, big mm-hmm. X. Um, and, and instead we get, you know, we get the idea that everybody else is a reasonable person. They're not arguing. They're waiting for the train. They're, they're doing what he wants them to do. And so, you know, and so at, you know, at that point, um, you know, we've got, you know, we've got kind of a, you know, kind of a one dimensional guy. He's been, he's been pressing That's his case. A, yeah. Um, and now he's, now he's going to project it, you know, project his, you know, his case upon, um, you know, all the people sitting waiting for the train. Everybody is reasonable except for his companion. Mm, what a, yeah, that's a great run through. Um, there are a couple uh, moments that I'd like to, I'd like to touch on. And you sort of alluded to one. So let me read just a little exchange and Russ, we can uh, kick this around. It's really an awfully simple operation jig. The man said, it's not really an operation at all. The girl looked at the ground, the table legs rested on. I know you wouldn't mind it, Jig. It's really not anything. It's just to let the air in. The girl did not say anything. I'll go with you and I'll stay with you all the time. So we have the man saying three things. And all we know is where the, that she's looking down and then that she didn't say anything. And um, Hemingway doesn't tell us this, but I hear that really taking a long time that she is just, she's not going to respond to this because they're talking in sort of on different levels and to look down at the table legs is to have downcast eyes. It's to be disappointed by what you're hearing, not wanting to make eye contact with the person you're having a conversation with. So I find that exchange, even though the man is doing all of the talking I really like the way Jig is characterized uh, during that during that exchange. You know, there's so many, you know, there's so many things that go on in the story that you really have to you, know, you, you really you really have to work at it, right? Um, the jazz pianist Cecil Taylor, I think. I think this I think that this comes <laughs> from him said, you know, it, it take it you know, it takes me a long time to compose this music. It ought to take you yeah even longer to learn to listen to it and to understand it. And it, you know, so it's, it's easy to kind of like read along the surface 
the surface of the story. But then, you know, you get these cues, you know, maybe, maybe she's looking, you know, maybe she is downcast. Maybe she's looking at the, you know, at the ground that the table legs rested on because she's disappointed in him. Um, you know, I'm thinking of, of, you know, Jig gets the best lines oh, in the yeah. story, right? So I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of, you know, of, of one of them, uh, you know, that's all we do, isn't it? Uh, you know, look at things and, and, and try new drinks. Um, there are so many ways that that could be said. Yeah. Um, and Hemingway, you know, of course, Hemingway is not giving us a clue, so we have to sort it out. Right. I mean, you could see, you know, the easy thing is sarcasm, right. Or vicious sarcasm. Um, but suppose that, suppose that she's saying it in a bewildered tone, like she's just now yeah. figuring it out, um, you know, on the station platform with his badgering that, oh man, we've got an empty yes. life. Um, you know, or, you know, or suppose, you know, suppose she's saying it in, you know, kind of a, a sorrowful, resigned tone. Um, yeah, you know, that's, that's our life. It's a really interesting point, which is to ask, really, how is Jig different at the end of the story than she will? Like, what does she learn? What does she learn about herself? What does she learn about their relationship? Uh, one of the, one of the moments that I not sure, I mean, I'm not sure Jig always gets the credit for this. We could have everything. We can have everything. No, we can't. We can have the whole world. No, we can't. We can go everywhere. No, we can't. It isn't ours anymore. It's ours. No, it isn't. So she's standing up for herself, right? Five, six times. Yes. She's saying, yeah. no, wait, the, the line that you're feeding me, the nonsense, it's, it's not true. I know, I know it, right? And she, she has a reality that she's not going to be gaslighted about this. There's one school of thought that says that that she's a lot more worldly and mm. experienced than she might seem. I'm not I'm not sure that you know I'm not sure that I buy that all the way, but she is a lot smarter than he is. Um, she has you know much more of an imaginative, as I've said, creative mind. Um, you know she's 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 willing. Uh, you know, on the one hand, right, she's willing to to create this image for herself out of, you know, out of the, um, you know, out of the landscape, um, which is, you know, it's a wonderful image. It's great and hopeful, but it's like, you know, really, um, you know, you know, you're, you're turning, you're turning the, you know, the impenetrable landscape into something that's beneficial to you. Um, you know, this is something that, that, you know, the travel writers, you know, do all the time and struggle against, right. Trying to read meaning their own meanings into the landscape. Um, you know, so, so she can do that, but at the same time, um, as you said, she's, you know, she, she can be a hard nosed realist. Um, he is feeding her a line, mm. you know, and, 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 you know, if you think about things, literally we can go anywhere. Well, you know, okay, you're an American, you've got a bunch of money. Um, but we really can't go anywhere. We really can't do everything that we want to do. Um, you know, uh, you know, Freud civilization and its discontents, right. There are things that, you know, there are things that we can't do, even though we want, you know, even though we may want to do them. Um, so she's, yeah, so she's, she's a really interesting mixture, um, of, of, uh, motivations and, and, and thought patterns and, you know, and decision-making processes. Um, you know, you say, what does she learn by the end of the story? I'm not sure. 
um, because I think for her, the pregnancy is still an open question by the end of the story. I don't think for her remaining with the American is an open question. I think it's going to be, a, I think it's a question of who dumps who first. Um, but, but I said, but I think that, you know, that, that oh, she's yeah. her decision-making about the pregnancy is still, that that's still up in the air. A sequel would have been really interesting. The next stop of the train station. No, 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 no. You can't have a sequel, right? And and this is this is why the suspended ending is is so yeah. awesome. Um, you know, uh, what is it? Henry James. You know, the the novelist. You know, defines when the characters' relationships to each other start and stop. Um, you can't you can't get on the train with them. As a matter of fact, at the end of the story. They haven't even gotten on the train yet. We're still within that five minute window between when the, you know, when the person in the bar tells them five minutes and when the train actually pulls up. Because, you know, and Hemingway knows this. Um, if they get on the train, it's 200 miles to Madrid. You know, think of that at like, you know, the, the blinding speed of, of the 1920s train being like 35 miles an hour, you know. That's six more hours of, that they're going to spend together. So of, you can't sheer have a awkward, sequel, right? of sheer awkwardness. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, yeah, actually, yeah. you know, Russ, there's several other exchanges and moments of dialogue that I want to talk about. But if I just can pull back for one second, so we have been talking about this as an unspoken uh, discussion about the uh, about the word abortion is unspoken, and in fact, Hemingway, you know, this is. This is what it's, uh, even Hemingway has acknowledged that that's what it's about. Does the story function if a reader thinks it's about something, uh, thinks that the dispute is about something other than an abortion? There's a nasty comment out there about Virginia Woolf yeah, that says right. it, that she, you know, she thought it was a, a dental exactly. operation. Um, and, you know, and I'm, I'm not really <laughs> sure about that. I mean, you know, come on, you know, Virginia Woolf isn't an idiot, right? Um I, I don't I don't know whether it functions without without a you know abortion or a, you know or a, a woman's choice at the center of the story um, probably because I never really thought about it you know any other any other way and it's and and you know even if you know nothing about the story I used to use the story in in, in teaching uh, in teaching all the time. And I would I would break the class into groups of two or three and give them unmarked, unfootnoted yes, that's uh, copies of that's the story, important. right? And have them, yeah, and have them read it to each other aloud, which you can do even in a fifty-minute class. You know, you've got time to read the story and try to figure it out, and then you know, do some discussion questions and come back. Um, you know, that's how short the story is. Uh, but invariably, they got it. Mm -hmm. They may not have gotten it till the end of the story, and they might have gotten it when they were discussing it, you know, together. Um, but it's—I don't know that it, you know that the idea that this is centered around uh, abortion or terminating a pregnancy um, is is all that hard to grasp. Um, it 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 makes it makes the stakes in the story really high if it is. You know, if it is about, um, if it is about that, and you know, as you said, Hemingway has said it's about that, because you know, here, you know, anything else, or most other things, are going to be less than what you might perceive as life and death. Um, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't know how far along. It, right, is. 
The reason I, I ask that is because, uh, first of all, I've taught this uh, story and I've, I've, I have heard many different theories about what the operation could be. Oh, oh really? sure. And, you know, lobotomy, sex change, adoption, uh, an operation in the sense of like a criminal, uh, action, you know, like the operation, like a, a, any kind of thing. And the, I guess the question is taking aside that uh, abortion would have a particularly loaded element to it. Um, the fact still remains that this guy, is trying to get this girl to do something that she really in her heart doesn't want to do, or she's at the very least enormously unsure about doing it. And so on that level, even if you, and I'm putting this in quotes, misread the actual um, subtext or the, you know, the, the hidden part of the iceberg, you still get the effect that Hemingway is trying to, describe, which is that the guy is simply trying to manipulate the person that he's with, right? Whether it's a, whether it's about the, the thing that it's specifically about, you still get the main gist of, of the power imbalance. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, 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 I I see, I see what you're getting at. Yeah. Very much so. You know, okay. Suppose it's a lobotomy. It's still a struggle um, between two people. Right. One person, you know, absolutely sure what he wants. Uh, the other, not sure what she wants, and and, and actively looking for alternatives. Um, and and so, you know, in right the the name of the story collection, men without women. Yeah. Right? You know, this is about male, you know, male female dynamics, gender dynamics. But you're you're absolutely right. There are some sinister anthologies that have in the introduction oh here now you're about to read a story where a man and a woman are are about arguing about an abortion but it's not named, which kind of takes the magic of the story away it's it's really beautiful to see new readers new to hemingway learning as they go along what they are arguing about figuring it out for themselves yeah my i mean my favorite part of that whole you know that whole exercise with the story was watching students read it yeah. to each other um, because, you know, because it, it does, you know, it does read as, as any number of people have pointed out, it, it does read like a dramatic script. You know, there are lines and you have to figure out how to say them. Right. And you have to, you know, you have to figure out the, you know, the tone and who's saying what, and you can see the students stop and then like back up and, and, and they do and, it know, again. And, yeah. And, and try to, yeah, try to wrestle with, um, you know, uh, you know, with it. And, and it's just, you're right. It's, it's, it's horrible. To oh have yeah, that taken away by by of all things a foot. No, no. So um, I, so I, I have a suggestion of of one of the way I like to hear this particular ex- exchange. And Russ, tell me if you hear this any differently. So, uh, come back in the shade. He said, "You mustn't feel that way." I don't feel any way. The girl said, "I just know things. Uh, I don't want you to do anything that you don't want to do." And then it's hyphenated. So the woman, the girl, interrupts him, and she says, "Nor that isn't good for me." She said, "I know." Could we have another beer? And in my hearing of the story, there is no way that she doesn't imitate him when she says, nor that isn't good for me. She is definitely, definitely parroting the nonsense, The because le- she's had it at this point in the story. She knows exactly what she's going to say. And, you know, Rust, you said this earlier, how repetitive, mind-numbingly repetitive this guy is. And she's she knows his argument already. 
She does. Uh, she does. No, that's that's a great reading. That's exactly that's exactly the way I read it. And 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 it's why you know when things really come to a pitch, she doesn't ask him to please stop talking. She says please <laughs> seven times. You know, and it's like you know just you know just shut up. You know you've you've said it. You're going to say it again. You know how many how many times you know how many more times can you say it the same thing and hope for you know and hope for a different outcome? Uh, uh, Russ, um, I wish we had an extra half hour so we can figure out why Hemingway landed on seven. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the Ken Burns documentary is when our friend Miriam Mandel says the line seven times when she 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 narrates it, which is wonderful. She says to him, "What." You please, 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 please stop talking. Was it always seven in the manuscript? Yes. Wow. Yeah, to, yeah, to my knowledge. Yeah. It looks like she says in, in, this, in the pencil manuscript, it looks like she says, would you, you know, would you please time six, stop talking. And then it looks like in pencil that he's, he's, he's kind of tucked another please wow. in there to make it seven. Um, so, so I, you know, num- numerologists unite. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that means, but it started out as six and ended up as seven deliberately ended up as seven. When she does tell him, is she done here? Is like any further discussion, it's only going to make matters worse. So the response to that is he did not say anything, Right. He listens at least for a second or two. A second or two. But I mean, he's just, you know, um, well, also remember he's, you know, um, he stops and, and, you know, she's, she's at the point of screaming and the last thing he wants is a scene. Right. Um, you know, and, and he's, and he's been actively trying to avoid a scene, um, you know, getting some drinks, you know, moving around, um, you know, he's, he's, He's desperate to avoid that. I think we should point out that one of the genius aspects of this story is it's in public. The argument is in public, but it's also in a different country. So perhaps people would be able to see these people arguing, even if they couldn't understand the language they were arguing in. And then on top of that, they're at a train station so that this is, there is a limited amount of time. So Hemingway has kind of put a stopwatch on this scene. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different elements and layers at work here in just the way that Hemingway has said, I mean, he could have had them in a living room where they're all by themselves arguing, but that's not the case. It would have been a much different story, obviously. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, you know, as I, as I said, um, you know, the, a lot of the story does come or the setting of the story does come from that, um, that 1925 sketch. Um, so it's, you know, so he's got it, you know, he's got that as a ready made, right. Don't, you know, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Um, but at the same time, it absolutely has to be set in something, you know, in something like, like the railway station, the time element, um, the time element in this is, is really, really important. They've got 40 minutes to figure it out. They may have been, talking about it or arguing about it, you know, all the way, um, you know, all the way down from Pamplona where, 
I think, you know, if the informed reader, right, the one who, who can see beneath the waterline into the iceberg, um, the informed reader knows that they've come from Pamplona. There's really no other reason for them, you know, to be on the rails at that time of year when it's hot. Um, they've been to the San, you know, to the San Fermin. I don't know. It's almost like something out of Beckett, just this bare thing out there. You mentioned the word reasonably, that which I think is my favorite adverb in the story. There aren't many, but I want to. I want to, Russ, get you to weigh in on the my second favorite adverb in the story. Uh, so I think the third most important character is the uh, waitress, uh, and. So he says, uh, the, the, the train comes in five minutes. What did she say? Asked the girl that the train is coming in five minutes. The girl smiled brightly at the woman to thank her. So that's a one sentence paragraph with that adverb brightly in there. How do you imagine that she is smiling at the waitress? She's doing the thing that, you know, that perhaps most of us do when we don't speak the language. Uh, we exaggerate. Uh, physical motions or or uh, or expressions uh, to try to communicate, um, you know, try to communicate to to somebody. Thank you, please. Where's the bathroom? Perhaps I'm biased on on this one. I think that uh, you know, in addition to being uh, imaginative and creative, she seems like a genuinely uh, nice person. Yeah. I, th- I think she's I think she's being I think she's being nice, um, being nice to a person that the American is, you know, is treating, you know, is treating, I don't know, like a waitress. If, if you've ever been in a restaurant and been in the middle of a fight, the waitress tends to come over at exactly the wrong time. I mean, this happens to other people. This, not me, (laughs) not, not me. I wouldn't know about this personally, but I've heard that if you're out in an argument, uh, Asking for yeah, a yeah, asking for a friend. and you slap on that fake smile like brightly, uh, and it's very, it's very light because remember we've heard about the word bright before. You know, wasn't it bright? Wasn't it bright to talk about the the, oh, the hills yeah. like white? You know, I hadn't yeah. thought of that. So where it's like, and yeah, then a lot great. of it is talking about you know this this aspect of illumination and and so forth. So okay, they were all waiting reasonably for the train. Uh, he went out through the bead curtain. She was sitting at the table and smiled at him. And then the guy, and Russ, take us through this last exchange, because do you feel better? Now, before we even get to the last line, what does the guy coming back and saying, do you feel better? What is that? What is he really asking? I think he's asking her, you know, again, he can't, he can't stop, right? Um, he's asking her if during the time he's been away, she's leveled out everything's okay. They're going to get on the train reasonably. That's They're going right, to reasonably yeah. get on the train um, and, and, and go together. It's just an astonishing level of presumption. <laughs> um, you know, uh, he says exactly and, the and, wrong thing, right? When he comes back. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Well, he's been saying, you know, he's, he's been saying, I mean, he, all right. He can have his, he can have his point of view. He can, he can say, you know, things like I, you know, I'm not, ready um i wouldn't be good with he's he's entitled to those because those are entirely uh, his his feelings but but just you know just to come back so he's been so to a degree he's been saying his point of view but he's been saying it you know in a, in the wrong overbearing way and this is just like the final you know the final one you know and that's uh, you know i don't you know 
there, you know, there's all kinds of speculation out there. You know, does she eventually have, you know, terminate the pregnancy? Does she eventually not? Does she eventually have the child? I, you know, I don't know, but I, but I'm, I'm positive in that last sentence of dialogue from her that, that he's toast. Yeah, they're not together um, anymore. She's yeah. gone. She's, she's gone. Um, just as, just as soon as she gets a place to go. What's particularly galling about him saying, do you feel better, is that he had a couple minutes to actually figure out what he, you know, it's like, okay, that was a scene, that was a, maybe I said something, I should, what could I possibly say? He had a minute or two to rehearse, he had a drink, and then he comes and he, lead, you know, he leads a, a, in, in, a, in a ridiculous, obnoxious way. Okay, so Russ, the last line of the story. I feel fine. She said, there's nothing wrong with me. I feel fine. And again, Hemingway, this is, we've talked about this many times on the show, how Hemingway can sometimes end a story or in the case of The Sun Also Rises, even a novel with somebody saying something and it just hovers in the air. You're not even told how it's said, but he ends with a line of dialogue. So what do you make of First of all, Hemingway giving her the last word, but also what she means by what she says. I think Hemingway gives her the last word because I think Hemingway likes her. A lot of her dialogue uh, about the hills and about the the surrounding landscape actually come from Hemingway's own mouth um, in that 1925 uh, uh semi-autobiographical sketch. Um, so he, he gives her the best lines. He gives her, he, he gives her his lines. Um, you know, he's the one that, that came up with the, with the simile, you know, like, you know, like white elephants and he gives that to her. Um, so I think that, you know, I think, I think she gets the last word because he likes her better than he likes the American. And, and I just, you know, again, I just, I read, I read that last line as you know, she's, she's made her mind up. She's, you know, she's out of there the second that she can get out of there. There's nothing, you know, this he's, you know, throughout the story, you know, um, I know that you won't mind it. It's just a little thing. It's almost not even an operation. Um, you know, and then when he goes and, and, you know, looks for people, you know, looks at people waiting reasonably for the train, you know, obviously he thinks that she's unreasonable and he's, he's pretty much communicated that to her, um, through the course of the story. Uh, she's made the decision. I don't know about terminating the pregnancy, but, but personally as her, there's really nothing wrong with her. She's, you know, she's, 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 she's fine. Um, she, she in and of herself is, you know, she's fine. She's not this, she's not this person that the American has been trying to characterize for the last, you know, 1499 words. Is she saying there's nothing wrong with me? Like being pregnant is not a disease, right? There's nothing wrong. Like the state that I'm in, it's natural. It's not, it's not a, it's not inherently a problem. Or is she saying there's nothing wrong with me? Uh, emotionally, behaviorally, the way I've been, the way I am responding to this pregnancy is not wrong. I think it's probably, it's probably more the Mm -hmm. latter. Um, Although, you know, although remember this is, you know, this is an interesting time in in medical history. Um, You know, Hemingway's, Hemingway's own father had taken some uh, specialized uh, 
specialized coursework and obstetrics. Mm. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a point in sort of Euro-American medicine when pregnancy goes from being a natural thing actually to being a problem when it becomes medicalized, when it becomes a, you know, a condition that has to, you know, that has to be treated. Um, and, you know, and Hemingway is living through that time. Um, so, so it, I think it's really great insight, um, you know, to, uh, to connect it up with the, um, uh, with the, uh, the uh, you know the sort of debate between yeah. whether pregnancy is a medical issue or whether it's a natural a natural thing. I think that that's that that's really brilliant. I've always read it more as as you know I'm you know emotionally I'm fine. My response to this is all fine. I you know there's really there's really nothing wrong with me. Um, there's nothing wrong with me as a person. That's a great point, Russ. I also like there's nothing wrong with me. Yeah, that's a good. Like at the end of this, well, yeah, you, yeah, you know, it it depends on what inflection you give it. You know, there's nothing wrong with me, or there's nothing wrong with me. Yeah, Um, you know, where you put the where you put the stress in the sentence really, um, uh, it really puts her in two different places. Yeah, she realizes at the end of the at the end of the story that this guy has overplayed his, you know, where he he went so over the top that he's the uh, he's the problem not not like nothing she hasn't done anything wrong um you know the we we're talking about the dialogue and really he there isn't really a moment where hemingway tells us how somebody says something it's all left to our ears and the way we're invested in the, in the scene i no i i agree i mean it's you know robert paul lamb is is really really good about uh writes really well on how uh how Hemingway uses point of view um in short stories he does a, a really oh, great sure. uh, really great thing about about Indian camp um but you can just i mean you can see the technique and this is one of the things that um you know that attracts me to the story uh he's just absolutely rigorous yeah. in you know in not you know in in not putting a value anywhere not not just you know not putting a a, a word that would you know, that would give you a sense of how the dialogue is being said or inflected. Uh, you know, it, it just, you know, you get those two little tiny windows, right, into um, into uh, Jiggs and the American's consciousness, but just for a second. Um, and the rest of it is just, um, you know, it, it's it's just amazing. So maybe you're answering the question that I'm intending to ask as our, our final consideration. Of all of Hemingway's stories, uh, we mentioned in the introduction that it's something like Hills Like White Elephants seems to be just one that people keep coming back to as, as I said, if, if you're going to read one story, if it's the most anthologized one, what is it about this? And are you comfortable that this might be a, a new reader's entry into Hemingway or, or what they associate with a Hemingway short story? I think it's absolutely representative of, of Hemingway. Um, you know, there are other stories, um, you know, that, that one might like as well. You know, Indian camp is, is, you know, is one of my favorites. I think, I think that Indian camp is one of Hemingway's favorites, um, as well. No, this one just, this one just sticks with you. You know, when I was, when I was doing some, uh, when I was doing the initial work, 
uh, on the story, um, I wanted to know how hot it was. Yeah. Right. You know, there's a, there's a certain, there's a certain generation of us, you know, they grew up watching, you know, late night TV and, you know, and, and if somebody says how hot the, you know, the audience would yell, you know, well, how, how hot was it? Right. Um, so, so I went online to the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric <laughs> Administration website and, and picked at, at sort of random a climate scientist. Um, his first name was Russ. So I figured I might have an in, right? Um, and, and emailed him and asked, said, you know, I know that you guys have, you know, climatological data on major cities in the US, you know, highs and lows, that kind of thing. Um, do you keep track of that worldwide or do they do that by country or, and, and, you know, he very nicely answered me back and said, we do it for the United States. Uh, other countries do it for themselves. Um, I had told, I had mentioned in the email that I was, I was interested in, in uh, temperatures in uh, Pamplona and, Zara, and uh, Zaragoza um, in 1925. And he said, well, you know, Spain, Spain is gathering this data, but, you know, basically, unless you're fluent in Spanish, you know, you're pretty much out of luck. And so I wrote him back to thank him and, and um, you know, and, and said, you know, I'm working on this Ernest Hemingway story. He was like white elephants, you know, if, if you ever hear of, you know, a way into that data, um, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd appreciate it. So he writes back, wait a minute. <laughs> I read that story in college and, and, and I remember it. Um, my buddy at the University of Tarragona is right now collecting this data set. Um, here's the article that, you know, that, that's published in a major scientific journal. Tell me what dates you want and oh. what cities you want, and I'll get you the information. And so years later, right, because I, you know, I have no idea how old he is, but he's obviously not just out of college. You know, this is the story that he's read from Hemingway, and it stuck with him, stuck with him hard to the point where, you know, he's doing favors for somebody he doesn't know. That's great. Um, because, because we have, we have, you know, we have a mutual, uh, mutual uh, interest in the story. How hot was it? Oh, um, in, uh, when Hemingway was leaving, uh, leaving Pamplona that day, uh, in 1925, where the story is based on it's, it's in the, it's in the sixties. Um, by the time you get down to the, to the, um, Zaragoza plain, um, you're up into the eighties, um, you know, ratcheting up toward 90. Um, so, you know, so, it, and here's, you know, right, here's, here's the, you know, here's, I don't know, the part of the iceberg thing, you know, it's, is you know, the closer that they, that they've, that the couple has gotten to Casadas, the hotter it's gotten. Yeah. So, you know, so it's, it's like it, you know, however the day started, it's become a pressure cooker by the time they hit Casadas. Russ Pottle, thank you so much for joining us on One True Podcast and talking about Hills Like Wet Elephants. This has been great. I've had a great time. Thank you so much. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on onetruepod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society, the English Department at the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Until then... I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast.